You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at tmobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount terms and conditions apply. Back in kindergarten, you learned that it's important to share with others. But little did you know that you have no say in the matter. Just when you adjusted, and perhaps you haven't, to the idea that trillions of microbes live in you, we've discovered that your bugs are not yours alone. Your microbes affect your behavior, mood, and health. And now scientists say that you share and swap them with people close to you. So why it's important to cultivate good friends and a woman who skipped bathing for a month to see what would grow on her. Microbes, resistance is futile on Big Picture Science. Stop before you wash your hands. Well, actually, go ahead and wash your hands. Hand washing is one of the most important ways we have to avoid spreading germs. But let's put it this way. You'd certainly want someone to lather up after handling raw chicken or changing a baby's diaper and before they shook your hand. But hand washing may be as far as I can go in giving advice about ridding yourself of malicious microbes because many of the microbes on you, you may want to keep. Some bugs are pathogens for sure. E. coli and salmonella come to mind. But recent studies of microbes and what's called our microbiome have produced a shift in outlook. Now we know that bad microbes are greatly outnumbered by the beneficial bugs that are becoming the new frontier of health and medicine. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. Big Picture Science steps back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this hour, we step back by zooming in to your microbiome, to the millions, nay billions, nay trillions, if you count all bacteria, viruses, and fungi, that call your body home sweet home. You have more microbial corpuscles in you than you do human cells. Your microbiome is as much you as your DNA. And now we're learning that you share and swap microbes with those you hang with. But don't bother fighting the microbes. Resistance is futile. When it comes to health and protecting ourselves against disease, sometimes we rush to judgment. Killer! Murderer! Order, order. Bailiff, escort that woman and her can of decon from the courtroom. Counselor, please continue your summary. And in conclusion, new scientific evidence shows that the weather conditions in Europe during the 14th century made it impossible for my client to have perpetrated this crime. The tree ring data clearly demonstrate it was neither warm enough nor dry enough for my client to have bred and spread in a manner that would kill millions. Well, after hearing the evidence presented today, I agree. And that's why I hereby find you, Radis Radis, fully absolved in the spreading of the bubonic plague that obliterated one-third of the population of Europe. Please accept the court's apology for the stigma that the rat has unjustly carried for centuries, which has us recoiling at the very side of you and made the word rat synonymous with disease and uh, general grossness. I knew you didn't do it, Henry. Thanks, Ma, and thank you, Your Honor. All I want is to return to my quiet life of scuttling through dank sewers, eating rotten garbage, and squeezing through wall holes the size of a quarter so that I can relieve myself on kitchen countertops. Next on the docket, in the charge of spreading a deadly pandemic, how do you plead, Asian gerbil? 
not guilty. It wasn't me. I'm being set up, I swear. Technically, the gerbil is right, because the recent study finding that the rat didn't spread black death after all in the mid-14th century, but that the Asian gerbil did, still didn't finger the real culprit. Bubonic plague is caused by a bacterium called Yersinia pestis. Whether it hitches a ride in fleas on gerbils or on rats, it is the pathogen that invades a cell and ultimately kills its host. So let's let this gerbil off on a technicality. But bacterium, you stay. There's more to say about you. The aversion we feel to plague bacteria is not only natural but also adaptive. Some bacteria and viruses are lethal for sure. Those are the bugs that make the headlines, sometimes even the history books. But the vast majority of microbes around us and in us don't. They're harmless, even beneficial. And yet the equivalence we make that microbes equal disease means that, like the rat, most microbes are being given a bum rap. Later in the show, we'll hear from a woman who stopped using soaps or shampoos for a month to see what bacteria would grow on her. But before that, we ask, why would she do such a thing? Well, physician Bill Miller, the author of The Microcosm Within, Evolution and Extinction in the Hologenome, has an idea. The Hologenome Theory is the idea that natural selection works not just on an individual, but the individual along with its microbiome. And Dr. Miller says that our microbes may influence us more than we realize, from shaping our health, our mood, even guiding our gut instinct. People say, you know, I have a nervous stomach. People don't really know what that means when they're saying it, other than they just feel queasy. But there are profound physiological mechanisms that lie behind this. And part of this is this microbial neural axis. So the gut has more neuronal tissue than our spinal cords. And it connects up in very robust pathways, up through the vagus nerves and other pathways that we're only learning about now. And these microbial interactions within our gut influence our metabolism in profound ways. And we're finding that out through experiments. So what you're saying is they control me in some sense because of their access to the nervous system uh, in our intestines, that they, they send signals down the nervous system that can affect other parts of our body, not just the digestive system. Absolutely. So the way that people really need to start thinking about this, and it's a little bit disturbing on first thought, but you kind of grow into it. You have to think of the gut as an enormous ecology. You know, rainforests are an ecology, and you know the enormous amount of life and the reciprocal interactions that exist within the ecology of a rainforest. You have to start understanding that the cells, where they combine in certain aspects of your body, act just that way, an enormously complex ecology that works together and profoundly influences how you experience things. It affects your immunity and it affects almost every single aspect of your life and the development that made you become who you are. So is <laughs> you, you sort of outlined a whole range of things that this could affect. I mean, our reaction to a disease. Uh, wh what about things that are, I don't know, I don't know, thinking arthritis or, or uh, various nervous system ailments. I mean, can they affect those in any way? Absolutely. What we are finding is that and this is particularly true with some of the uh, the diseases that we regard as the chronic diseases of aging. But for a very good example is type 2 diabetes. Evidence is beginning to surface that there is a strong interrelationship between the microbial life that's in your gut and either your chance of getting diabetes or you're actually developing it outright. And the same is true with certain forms of arthritis and definitely relates to autoimmune disorders. What is beginning to be understood is that there's some kind of a microbial dysbiosis, a breakdown of the normal microbial mechanisms that are working together to make you healthy. You are a highly organized, mixed machine, which is both your own personal cells and the entire microbial complement that makes you who you are and grants you survivorship. Well, there's apparently a theory of evolution called the hologenome. Uh, is that what you're getting at here, the fact that we have to look beyond the DNA that's in our body cells, but also look at the, you know, the, I suppose, the DNA of all these uh, hitchhikers? Well, yes, that's exactly what it is. The hologenome concept is a new way of looking at organisms. In the past, with standard Darwinism, 
you looked at the whole organism. So you, you and I will look in the mirror. We see ourselves. Well, naturally, we have to assume we're exactly what we see. I look in the mirror. I'm Bill. I know I'm Bill. I'm one thing. Well, that's not how nature sees you. Nature sees you as a vast, collaborative, cooperative enterprise, co-linked environments. If you stop thinking of yourself as a singularity and start thinking of yourself as a vast, collaborative network of linked ecologies, you'll begin to understand how nature appraises you, how the immunological world that surrounds you and the agitating genetic world, of microbial world that's out there, how it interacts with you. It's an entirely different way of looking at how a human being or any other creature is formed. One of the things you write about is how in the future we might be able to treat some of these diseases by adding specific microbes to our digestive system and maybe restore that breakdown you're talking about. I can understand how that might work with digestive disorders again, but could it treat conditions such as, I don't know, arthritis, obesity, those sorts of things? There's no doubt that it's going to be effective in that manner. Let me give you a couple of examples. A treatment that is actually in practical use today that would have seemed absolutely astounding not very long ago. There is an antibiotic-resistant microbe called Clostridia difficile. And certain people get prone to these chronic infections with this organism. And administering antibiotics can even make it worse. The problem is we didn't have a good treatment for these kinds of patients. And, and now this may disturb some of the listeners, but what has started to be done is called fecal transplantation. They are taking the feces from a healthy person with a normal gut microbial complement, and they're actually transplanting it, which is basically just inserting a tube and shoving it up there. And, and this is yielding remission in a very high number of patients and cures in some of them. So this is an example of how, as our understanding of how we are intrinsically related to this partnership, this collaboration with this vast microbial network that is in us, on us, and part of us, how we, we will be able to successfully manipulate it and help people. So this is, I mean, this is obviously a fairly brute force approach. Just take the microbes from somebody else and put them in you. Is there anything you could do to simply modify the microbes that are already in you, or is that the wrong way to go about this? No, that's a terrific idea. And this is research that's just beginning. For example, there was a nice study done at the University of California where they took a group of women. And again, please understand, this is just emerging knowledge. Uh, lots of work needs to be done uh, to firm up conclusions. But they took a group of women in which they did carefully controlled administration of probiotics, yogurts. And they gave other women yogurts that didn't have probiotics in them and ran a set of controls. And then they did, not only did they do self-assessment tools for psychological well-being, but they actually did functional MRI. An MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, is a sophisticated tool that we utilize to image the brain. And there's a technique that can be used where you can look at the neural pathways and determine basically kind of which ones light up and which ones don't. And what they found is when they correlated those fMRI studies to those women that had received the active probiotic yogurts and had self-reported themselves to greater sense of well-being, diminished depression, that there were actually quantifiable changes on the functional MRI scans. So we're just beginning to understand how we're going to manipulate this partnership that we're in. But once we do, this is going to become, Seth, and I, I am certain that this is going to be true, the next huge wave of medicine, and it will take decades to spill out. Do you uh, foresee a kind of Wild West scenario developing? You know, you know, you know, when this gets out to the public, hey, you know, your problem might not be with your genes or your lifestyle or what you eat or any of that stuff. It may be you've got the wrong kind of microbes in your gut. And so you just take this uh, bottle of stuff over here and, you know, it's not necessarily tested. It might not work and so forth. But, I mean, I can imagine people would be very attracted to these kind of microbial remedies. Seth, you're making me smile because I happen to have a bottle here of this Nostrum that I'd like you to buy for only $19.99 in three separate payments. <laughs> no, seriously, you are correct. This is difficult science that's going to take decades. And your point that this could be misused and people could be misled and they could be 
induced towards therapies that are either useless or possibly even harmful are going to be a concern. But we're also in an era in which the internet empowers people to better information that they had before. So I'm quite optimistic that we'll avoid that. I have the feeling I'm living for my microbiome. I'm not sure I'm, I'm living for myself. Well, well, you know, Seth, you, you're an interested in extraterrestrial life and our purposes on this planet. And it is conceivable that we are microbial vessels, microbial earthships, as it were. I know this is going to sound like off the moon, cringeworthy things for many of your listeners. But the deeper you get into this, the more you understand how little we understand about this whole process. Yeah, I feel like I'm being manipulated by very tiny things. Well, 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 finally, Bill, um, what do you say to people about washing their hands? When I was a kid, by gosh, you washed your hand, you know, every time you turned around. Do you still recommend that? I do. It is still important to wash your hands because there are a lot of bad bugs out there. There are a lot of pathogenic bacteria, and hand washing is more than ritual. It's an effective way of maintaining that control. However, to a limit, the fact is that we thrive on being in a rich and diverse microbial atmosphere. So, for example, there is a belief that is starting to form that the increase in allergies that many people experience, that young people are experiencing, that young people are not rolling in the dirt the way they used to. They were acquiring part of this vast panoply of microbial life that we require to be healthy immunological organisms. Now, children are protected from this to some degree, and that's one theory. The hygiene hypothesis is what it's called. This is one theory about why there has been a substantial increase in childhood asthma. Bill Miller, thanks for your entire hologenomic self for being with us today. (laughs) I've never been thanked for my whole hologenome. I'm I'm loving it. Thank you. Bill Miller is a physician, and he is the author of The Microcosm Within, Evolution and Extinction in the Hologenome. Well, we now see how you are what you eat applies to your microbiome. But what about you are who you hang out with? How the company you keep may influence which microbes call you home sweet home. You might not like it, but you can't fight it. Microbes, resistance is futile on Big Picture Science. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How well do you know your family, your roommates, or your bowling buddies? I mean, who are they really? Well, we're not talking character. After all, they could be kleptomaniacs, tax dodgers, sidewalk spitters. Oh, that last one is the worst. (laughs) Yes, but rather who your cohorts are deep inside. That is, what kind of microbes flourish in their digestive tract? Well, the answer may determine not only their microbiome, but yours. Yes, you don't have proprietary rights to your microbiome, and neither does anyone else to theirs. Bugs may be commonly swapped property of your community, suggests new research by biologist Beth Archie. She investigates the social habits of our primate cousins, baboons. Now, primates have co-evolved with microbes over millions of years. In fact, every animal on Earth has an intimate association with microbes. But the University of Notre Dame researcher examined exactly which microbes are trafficked between individuals and between groups. The results suggest that whom you hang with helps determine the composition of your microbiome. In other words, when you return from the neighbors, it may be with more than a borrowed cup of sugar. Baboons don't swap kitchen staples, but they do share a lot of stuff. Dr. Archie describes how her team collects the microbes that baboons leave behind. 
we go out, we follow the baboons around on foot, and we, they're quite used to us, so we can get quite close to them. And then when one of our subjects wants to donate a sample, let's say, we, we scoop it up in a Dixie cup and then throw it in some ethanol, and, and that's good to go. And I presume that it does go after they've, <laughs> after they've gone. All right, so the baboons, they've picked up these microbes, these gut microbes, I assume, much the way that we do from the foods they eat, the dirt they roll around in, whatever. So that is a great question, and that was one of the key things we were really trying to understand is how do they get these microbes, and do they come from social relationships? So we've seen in humans and in chimpanzees this suggestion that social relationships are important. So for instance, people that live in the same house tend to have the same microbes, or chimpanzees that live in the same social group tend to have similar microbes. But those kinds of patterns can arise through a bunch of different processes. So one way could just be that people in the same house tend to eat the same foods at the same time. Everyone has Cheerios for breakfast in the morning. And that just creates a similar resource that the microbes use. And that's what creates a similar microbial community. We were interested in sort of going beyond that to see whether actual physical contact between animals is what shapes the microbial community they have and even what genes are carried by those microbes. So in other words, you want to know whether, you know, the fact that they live together actually is regulating the fact that their microbes might be similar as opposed to the fact that they all eat at the same hamburger stand. That's exactly right. Do they all live together and even how much do they touch each other? Does that predict, you know, what what kind of microbes they have and what their microbial communities look like? Well, what was the result? I mean, uh, what'd you find? We found, interestingly, that members of different social groups have really different microbial communities. And not only that, when we look within a social group, the animals that groomed each other a lot, that's sort of the major way of forming a baboon social bond is by grooming each other. Um, and you know that obviously involves a lot of physical contact. They're combing through each other's fur, um, putting things in their mouths. So those grooming relationships predicted their gut microbiome. So animals that groomed each other more often had more similar microbes. Well, maybe you could explain how that works because, you know, I can envision lice <laughs> jumping. I mean, I don't want to, but, you <laughs> know, I can envision lice jumping from the skin of one animal to another animal. But we're talking about gut microbes. Uh, how do those get into somebody's, fr- I mean, I don't know how grooming, you know, the, the guy next to you is going to get you his gut microbes. Yeah, well, you know, baboons are not really known for being hygienic <laughs> animals. So, um, so you know, the bab- baboons will groom each other all over. Microbes, you know, live all over our skin and bodies. There are microbes that are shared between the gut and the skin. Microbes that live in your gut can, you know, live for a short time on your body. So it could just be that they're, you know, picking them up on their hands as they're grooming and then getting them in their mouths, and that's how the transmission probably happens. Okay, well maybe you can give me some examples of what what having a certain set of these microbes actually does for me, Joe Baboon. I mean, they live inside the baboons, they regulate all sorts of things in their lives. Give me some examples of, you know, how this affects them. That's actually, I think, a really important future direction, is trying to understand what are the effects of this kind of social transmission. We know in humans, and in a bunch of other animals that microbes are really important. It's possible that the differences in the communities that we see in different baboon groups, so you know, different microbial communities in their guts influences their functions. We don't actually know the answer to that question, but it's really um, where we want to go next is trying to figure out why this might matter. Well, could it affect, I mean, something very specific like, uh, you know, what diseases they're susceptible to or, I don't know, their energy level or the... <laughs> Certainly, yeah. So it, it could definitely influence what diseases they're susceptible to. It could influence how much energy they're able to extract from the food they eat, you know, the vitamins that they get out of it. So there's a, there's a lot of things that could be important. I would think, I mean, this is very naive, but I would think that if there was one set of microbes that was really a lot better than, you know, the microbes that that group of baboons over there has, that, you know, I would eventually find that all the baboons had the same set of microbes because those would be optimal for my baboon lifestyle. Yeah, so that is a really great question. You know, just like when people travel from one country to another and encounter new foods and new disease exposures, 
we think that probably something similar happens in the baboons. There's even a suggestion that uh, when baboons, you know, sort of move into a new group, they may have to acquire the microbes that belong to that group, and it's possible that they, you know, get a benefit from that. Um, that's something we're looking into now. But let me take a step back. One thing you might need to know about baboon biology is that females live in the same group their whole lives, but males actually transfer between groups. And we still see that males have the group-specific microbiome even after they've moved in there. So at some point, they have to acquire those microbes, and that might actually be a benefit to them. I see. So you actually pick up the, if you will, the good microbes from uh, the folks you've moved in with. I mean, you, you exactly. don't, you're not stuck with the ones that you grew up with. Right. You're not necessarily stuck with the ones you grew up with. Now, Beth, it sounds to me that this effect that we benefit from the microbes of the group might actually be a driver for, I don't know, social interaction. The, the fact that we are social animals to begin with. We, we like to think we're social animals and that one of the consequences is that we all benefit from the better microbes, if you will, or all suffer from the, the poorer microbes. But maybe it's the microbes that are driving the social interaction that maybe we wouldn't have that without the microbes. Yeah, you're not definitely not the first person to suggest that. You know, the microbes outnumber us greatly, right? So microbes outnumber our cells 10 to 1. They outnumber our genes 150 to 1. And there's certainly evidence that microbes can basically hack into our behavior and manipulate us to their own purposes. There's a lot of examples of that from harmful organisms from parasites and pathogens. So one really well-known example is from toxoplasmosis. Toxoplasmosis appears to manipulate mice to make them less scared of cats. And then the cats run out and eat these mice that are engaging in risky behavior, and that's how toxoplasmosis is transmitted. So it's certainly possible that microbes are may be able to manipulate our behavior for their own purposes. So if somebody asks you, look, uh, you know, sitting next to you uh, on the bus, uh, what's the importance of your research? What would you say? What would you pick out between this stop and the next stop on that bus? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Be careful who you shake hands with because <laughs> it might influence your gut microbes. Um, I think what's really new here is the idea that what we do and who we interact with can influence our gut microbes. And those gut microbes are a new frontier of phenomena that influence our health. That said, I think the jury is really still out on whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. We're used to thinking about social relationships leading to the transmission of pathogens. For instance, in flu and Ebola, it's really easy to see how social relationships can make you sick. If you get the flu, you probably got it from somebody in your office. But I think this idea that beneficial microbes can also be transmitted along social lines really then calls into question, you know, is this transmission of microbes a good thing or a bad thing? And do social relationships sort of give us access to beneficial microbes that we wouldn't have been able to get otherwise? Well, Beth Archie, thank you and uh, your microbes so very much for being with us today. Great. Thank you for having me. Beth Archie is a biologist at the University of Notre Dame. Well, as she and Bill Miller have said, there is a lot of research still needed about how microbial communities are shaped and shared and how they influence our behavior and health. But investigation of the microbiome is already posing a challenge to philosophers of science. So one of the issues that I think that the human microbiome might help us rethink is whether or not we can really consider ourselves just individuals and independent because we are actually colonized by all of these other organisms which are necessary for our survival and necessary for our health. Not only is 99% of the DNA on us or in us not human, we heard from Beth Archie that microbial DNA doesn't necessarily stop at the boundaries of our skin. We share bugs with others and with our environment in general. And for Nada Gligorov, an assistant professor of medical education and philosopher of science, that prompts her to ask what it means to be an individual, singular, when we're actually a superorganism made up of microbial colonies, plural. So one of the very interesting things, I think, of the discovery that we have all of these organisms living on us, uh, I think that there is 
a real reason to reconceptualize or to really start thinking about how that discovery affects our personal identity or how it is that we can sort of rethink how we think of ourselves. Uh, some of the ways in which the human microbiome or the facts about the human microbiome can change how we think of ourselves is, number one, we can reconceptualize the relationship between us and the microbiome as less adversarial and more symbiotic. So we, we know that the microbiome is now important for our health. Well, so the idea, let's just expand on that idea there, the idea that germs are something that we need to fear and that each germ is an adversary that we need to wipe out. And you're saying we actually are in a, a symbiotic state with these organisms. Right. So I think that that's a very important thing, especially when it comes to our health. So we used to think that, you know, we, you need to prevent uh, infection or prevent contamination from germs. And the Human Microbiome Project is now telling us that not only in some cases do you want to not prevent contamination, but that bacteria are actually quite necessary for health. This would entail a rethinking of not just the human as being made up of all these microbes, but also the microbes in our environment and how we interact with our environment. So I think it's certainly uh, radical in a variety of ways. I think it is radical, especially for our health, but also how we think about potential treatments. With regards to personal identity, I think it can have some real effects. Often we, we think of ourselves as being independent from our environment and from other individuals. And so the human microbiome is really challenging that notion because I think our environment is much closer to us than we thought before. And in fact, I think we are our environment. I wonder if you could give an example of how the human uh, superorganism interacts with its environment. Each person actually sheds their microbiome all the time. So there was this very interesting study done a few years ago where they were able to take the skin uh, microbial mark on computers and identify the individuals who use the keyboards, even two weeks after the person used the computer. So each of us leaves behind our microbial mark. And so just leaving that microbial mark behind basically means that you can affect other people who are using the same objects that you do or sitting in the same places that you do in both a positive and a negative way. You are sharing your microbiome with other people and with the environment. So you are a philosopher of science, among other things. And what other sort of questions have you considered as, as a philosopher? You, you're talking now about what it means to be an individual now that science has discovered coming to understand the microbiome. Can you give us an idea of just some of the other big questions that a philosopher of science or that you specifically have taken under consideration? Okay, so I, I am also very interested on the ethical and other philosophical implications of the development in neuroscience. So I'm really interested actually in issues of how are, how the way in which we talk about ourselves and each other, so for example, how we predict and explain our behavior is affected by scientific discovery. So it's not just how scientists talk to each other about psychology or neuroscience, but how we speak to each other and how we interpret ourselves and other people. So I think neuroscience is also another uh, scientific field that I'm really interested in with regards to implications for philosophy. Can you give an example of how the discoveries in neuroscience, which had been profound, this is 21st century is being called the age of the brain or the age of neuroscience. I mean, certainly these discoveries are coming fast. How do the discoveries force us to reconsider how we interact with other people in neuroscience in particular? Mm -hmm. Well, one issue is, for example, the issue of mental privacy. So studies using functional magnetic resonance imaging have become really, really popular in the sense that they get written about a lot. And I think the idea that you can use a brain scan to know what is going on in the brain is, I think, challenging the way we think about the privacy of our mental states or, or the privacy of our inner brain states. I think just being able to know, for example, what somebody's thinking or being able to know what is going on in the brain is influencing how we think about the potential that we have for knowing what other people are thinking or even just the potential for being able to predict what they will do. So another issue that, that I think is very interesting or that people have talked about is the issue of free will, how it's connected to neuroscience. So the more and more we know about the brain, the less and less we seem to think of our ability to be able to make decisions independently. 
If we look at the concept of identity with neuroscience, one of the questions it seems is raised is, are we our brains? Mm -hmm. So is all of the identity in what's up in our gray matter, mm -hmm. our thoughts and our consciousness, mm -hmm. is that what it means to be human, not our, not our hearts or our bodies or, yeah. or so forth? Yes, exa exactly right. So that's neuroscience, I think, is really challenging how we think of ourselves. And I think that the question of are we our brains is really something that, that has challenged the issue of personal identity and all of the concepts that come with that. So agency, the responsibility, those anything that's connected to our ability both to be moral or to take responsibility for our decisions or take responsibility for who we are, even our preferences. Sometimes we have reason to really think that neuroscience can find a way of explaining what we like, the values that we endorse, what we do in everyday life, and how we react to the environment is basically determined by our brain. Instead of being maybe that we are our spleen or we are our uh, appendix or something. Yes, I, I think, well, actually, so you brought up the issue of the heart. Aristotle, uh, <laughs> an ancient philosopher, used to sort of talk about the movements of the blood and the pumping of the heart as something that can influence emotion or anger or just the movement of the blood was thought to influence or he thought could influence how we dream or what we dream about. So in a sense, he used to think that our mental states could be explained uh, by referring to the, to the workings of our heart. But now we know from neuroscience that actually our brain does a lot of the stuff that we attribute to psychology. And so there is a real shift there. I think that there you can really see the tangible impact of science on how we think about ourselves in everyday life. To bring it back to microbes and to bring in this, this concept of free will, mm -hmm. what scientists are finding out about how these microorganisms mm -hmm shape our behavior, maybe even control our behavior, it actually raises a question of free will because if the microbes in your stomach are determining maybe what you eat mm -hmm. and, and creating cravings for certain foods and so forth, maybe it's another attack on free will, mm -hmm. you know, this time not at the brain, but at the, the organism's living on us that seem to have their own ideas of what they want to do and they're making us go along for the ride. Yes, I think that's actually a very interesting issue that's coming out of the human microbiome, the role of the microbiota on behavior and on the brain and the amounts of control that we can exert on our behavior. So I think that that's definitely another way in which the human microbiome can influence who we are and how we think of ourselves and our free will. So that, that's a really exciting part of that particular project. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Nada Gligorov is an assistant professor of medical education at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Coming up, 86 the soap and the shampoo and what happens. Find out next. It's microbes resistance is futile on Big Picture Science. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. By now, you might be thinking that microbes aren't the enemy. In fact, you may be figuring that you want to fraternize with them more often. I'm Julia Scott, and for a month I went without bathing with soaps or shampoos in the name of science. Instead, I applied a living bacteria that scientists told me would make my skin healthier, happier, and less smelly. The experiment that freelance writer Julia Scott undertook was to swap out her soaps for a spray created by AO Biome, a biotech startup company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The spray was filled with live bacteria called Nitrosomonas eutropha, a pneumonia oxidizing bacteria that is ubiquitous but strangely does not live on humans. The company's theory is that at one time in our evolutionary history, they did and were beneficial. So Julia volunteered to test this theory and spray bacteria on herself every day to see not only if they'd take up residence, but also in the hope of better understanding not the microbiome in our gut, which we've been talking about so far in this show, but the microbiome on our skin. I would say the science on the gut microbiome is at least 20 years ahead of the science on the skin microbiome. 
scientists are just now starting to focus on what lives on us and give it the same level of interest as what's inside us. But we don't know what lives on us because whatever it is, it doesn't live on us for very long. There are a billion bacteria in the size of your little fingertip alone. And every time we wash, whether it's our hands or our bodies, these billions of species of bacteria come off of us and then regenerate over the course of the day. Only to be showered off again. So Julia tossed her soaps and shampoo for a month to give her Nitrosomonas eutropha and her natural bacteria a chance to grow. What would happen? Would they cohabitate, fight each other for dominance? Well, let the experiment in wild ecology begin. Julia wrote about it and described the results in an article for the New York Times Magazine entitled, A Wash on the Wild Side. Well, when I volunteered to do this project as a study subject, I was pretty much your typical gal, typical American lady. I would bathe with soap and shampoo almost every day. I had a variety of skin cleansers that I depended on for my face, under my arms. I had a special one, you know, just for under my feet. That didn't even count all the lotions that I would apply after bathing to ensure that I was feeling fresh and non-smelly and moisturizers and uh, spot treatments and all that stuff. And uh, that was, you know, my daily routine. I continued to do things like brush my teeth, wash my hands, and I took showers with, with water. Just instead of uh, using anything for apres shower, I would use bacteria spray. Okay, let's get to that bacteria spray. Now, this is a tonic developed by AOBiome. Is that right? And it contains something called ammonia oxidizing bacteria. What are those? They sound kind of dangerous. <laughs> Actually, they're the opposite of dangerous. Ammonia oxidizing bacteria are among the most ubiquitous class of bacteria that surround us in nature. They're in the soil air, they're in manure, they're in water. This fellow, Dave Whitlock, developed a theory that ammonia-oxidizing bacteria, this class of bacteria, he found that there were plenty of them around in nature, but none of them living on him. And he found that bizarre, considering they're readily found on various mammals. And the only reason he could think that that might be was because he and everybody else have been washing them off. And his theory was based on an observation of the fact that horses sweat, and when they sweat, they roll in the dirt. Nobody knows why horses sweat, but he asked himself whether the horses were um, giving themselves some relief by rolling in the dirt and whether there might be something beneficial in the dirt uh, so he literally just took a sample of dirt from a horse stable and analyzed the results. He eventually isolated the one species of bacteria, Nitrosomonas eutropha, that seemed the hardiest and, as a fluke, essentially developed a solution that would isolate these bacteria in water and started spraying it on himself to see whether it would help him sweat less and whether there would be any other benefits. Eventually, he built a company around his conviction that these bacteria had historically been beneficial to us. But that theory remains entirely unproven. These are ubiquitous bacteria. They're everywhere, but they're not on humans. But why would we want them on us? What do they do when you say that they, uh, they oxidize ammonia? What does that mean? We have ammonia on our body when we sweat. It's part of what causes our sweat to smell. These bacteria act on the ammonia, in order to break it down into nitrite and nitric oxide. That's a part of the eutrophication process in nature. Setting aside Nitrosomonas eutropha, which do not naturally live on our skin, the bacteria that do live on our skin form an entire second genome. They are a universe on top of us, and they're actually the most important protective barrier we have. And it's a mutually beneficial relationship because they like our skin. They like to live there. Our skin is yummy. It's got lots of pockets of food for them. It's got sweat and oil and dirt, and they like to eat those things. So what you were doing is you were spraying these ammonia oxidizing bacteria on you twice a day? Or what were you, can you give us a picture of what sure. that looked like without revealing too much? I mean, oh, no, please. I'll let me reveal all. Um, I'm not shy. No. Um, I would wake up in the morning and I would basically avoid looking in the mirror because by the time the second week of my experiment rolled around, I had avoided 
showering with soaps or shampoos for so long that my hair was a matted mess. And I would hop in my three-minute shower with hot water, uh, pretend to be clean, <laughs> get out. You could scrub, though. You I could, could scrub. scrub. I could scrub with my fingers under my arms and then spray bacteria uh, out of a normal spray bottle uh, that I would kept in the refrigerator. Everywhere, on your face, on your body, on your hair? Scalp, underarms, every part of my body, my bottoms of my feet. But the uh, result was as the bacteria made themselves more and more at home on my body, I became more and more embarrassed about my personal smell. And uh, at the same time, I also had to be around people in order for them to tell me what I smelled like because I was writing an article about it. So, well, well, say more about that. What did you look like? What did you smell like? What were the reports that other people were giving you about how you were presenting <laughs> yourself? Well, uh, starting with week two, it just it just became obvious that something was going on with me. And I had actually given my coworkers a heads up that I was a guinea pig in a very interesting experiment. And so I had, I had actually asked them for input, and, and they were not shy. Uh, what did they say? Well, some people would come right up to me and smell into my arms and tell me, you know, what I smelled <laughs> like that day. And um, people people actually left deodorant on my desk as a joke one day. I felt myself becoming antisocial. You know, I became convinced people could smell me from across the room. Okay, so this is how far you were willing to go with this experiment, but there was further indignity, if that's the right word, which is that you were being swabbed regularly. Where were you being swabbed, and what was the point of that? Well, the swabbing was the actual science part. Um, I went to a lab here in San Francisco that was contracting with AOBiome, and like the rest of their study subjects, I was swabbed at regular intervals on different parts of my body to see what colonies of bacteria were present, not just whether Nitrosomonas eutropha were present in statistically significant samples, but also whether the Nitrosomonas in the parts of the body they'd moved into were having an effect on other dominant species of bacteria, which could indicate certain things to the company. So I went in every week to uh, get swabbed top of my head, lowest part of my scalp where it connects to my neck, under my arms, bottoms of my feet, and then I'd have the test results a few days later and and I'd be able to see, you know, chart my progress and the progress of my bacteria on a little bar chart and be able to see, you know, what bacteria had had, had moved in and claimed the territory as their own. Certain bacteria enjoy certain parts of your skin more than others. Uh, for instance, there is a bacteria that's very common on skin called P. acnes, and uh, it's been attributed to actually both causing and helping resolve acne. There are different theories behind that, but those P. acnes live, not surprisingly, in the T-zone of your face and on your scalp. What did you learn was growing on you? Well, one thing I discovered was that there are more species of bacteria living on our skin than we even have names for. And so when I got my test results back and I saw that there were certain species of bacteria on my skin I had never even heard of, I had to read up. <laughs> and these were separate from the ammonia oxidizing bacteria, right? Yes. I was very pleased to see that starting right away in the first swab results on week one, that the uh, Nitrosomonas eutropha had moved right in and made themselves comfortable without pushing out any of the other species of bacteria that normally live on my skin. It's like... So they were good neighbors. They were good neighbors. they just kind of taken on a roommate. And uh, one interesting result was that uh, it seemed like the Nitrosomonas eutropha, as they grew in number, the number of P. acnes had diminished. And that was consistent with the lab-only testing that AOBiome had done back in Cambridge. They had seen 100-fold diminishing of P. acnes once they started adding a concentrated version of their patented Nitrosomonas eutropha bacteria to lab samples. And they theorized that someday, should their spray ever be released as a concentrated gel, it might be used for the treatment of acne, for instance. Please understand that uh, I'm definitely not advocating for anybody to recreate my experiment. In fact, the only reason I stopped using soaps and shampoos was to accelerate the process of having these bacteria colonize my skin, not because the company recommended I stop using anything. But the fact of the matter is that 
many soaps and shampoos have products that naturally remove our bacteria. And our bacteria also naturally regrow. We know so little about the science of what lives on our skin in terms of our personal microbiome that it's really hard to tell which ones are the most essential. It kind of seems obvious in a way if you, the fewer products you use, perhaps the more your skin will do what it's meant to do. It's, it's pretty hard to be able to say what our natural microbiome state is at this point because we have spent so much time substituting products for what we think of as our natural state. Julia Scott, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Julia Scott is a freelance reporter based in San Francisco. Her article, A Wash on the Wild Side, appeared in the May 22, 2014 issue of the New York Times Magazine. Well, what we've heard in this show is that, doggone, the microbiome is as important to us as you know everything else in our body. And obviously, there's a lot we still don't know, but we're really at the base of the mountain here. I mean, I got the feeling, talking to Dr. Miller earlier, that, you know, we're dealing with our hologenome, okay, but, you know, it might turn out to be as important to our well-being as antibiotics and vaccines are. I guess I'm going to, you know, consider uh, eating the right kind of yogurt or choosing my friends a little bit more carefully. Well, thanks to the super, super organisms that help produce this show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. We also appreciate the voice work of Chris Payne and Merritt Lear. Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to microbes. Resistance is futile. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find it in our Big Picture Science archive, which is on our website, bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because whatever's growing on those earbuds might not be good for you, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Well, throw in some faint praise and then email it all to bigpicturescienceatseti.org. Now we'll hear the case of the woman who has been riding the city bus without the benefit of soap and shampoo. We'll hear from Muni bus drivers and the unfortunate commuters on the end Judah in the case of the public olfactory offense. Bailiff, please distribute the clothespins. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is a yoga class? Get out of here. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.